This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be here with you today. At the end of um, kind of a kind of a dicey week here here at uh, Curl Up with a Cat Tale HQ. Uh, no, truly a, a little bit of a weird week. I, I will tell you the first way in which this actually impacts all of you. Um, so I was going to have an interview this week with my very dear friend. Her name is Andrea Sachs, formerly of Time Magazine. Andrea and I actually met back in 2010. Andrea used to cover the publishing beat, the book publishing beat for Time Magazine. We met in 2010 when she was doing a write-up about Homer's Odyssey, and and we had a little bit of an interview and became fast friends immediately thereafter. I suppose I should add here that Andrea Sachs is also one of the very great cat ladies of the Upper West Side. Um, and uh, so Andrea was going to be here on this week's show. We were going to be talking about uh, pets in the news. But unfortunately, Andrea has contracted a case of COVID and was not feeling up to doing an interview. Andrea, if you are listening, I certainly hope that you are feeling better soon. Andrea is actually one of the very last people I know to be contracting her, her first case of COVID. This is the first time that she has gotten COVID. Um, she took a great deal of precautions during quarantine and, and even afterwards, once the vaccinations were out. So, Andrea, I suppose uh, eventually the bell was always going to toll for thee, but I do hope that you are feeling better and that we are able to have you on the show to discuss your delightful cats, Abby and Jimmy, and other interesting topics as soon as possible. So rest up and get well so you can be back here. I've actually, and, and this is another reason why it's been a little bit of a, a weird week in this house. This is a, a little bit more of a story. Um, and of course, it relates to the cats and also to to health. I suppose, uh, technically speaking, I'm not going to be too mysterious about this one. I will just launch right into the story. So many of you who are longtime listeners have, have probably heard me discuss or at least make reference to various skin ailments and conditions that I've had over the years. My skin is surprisingly sensitive for somebody as olive-complected as I am. Usually you think of very fair-skinned people as having very sensitive skin. Um, I am not particularly fair-skinned at all, but nevertheless, I do have very sensitive skin, any number of skin problems over the years. Um, and among them, she, the, the chief of, of the ones that have just sort of made my life miserable have been acne. And, you know, I never had a lot of acne at any one time, but everything that I got seemed to leave behind some damage, some discoloration or a mark of some kind or, you know, uneven skin. Um, and over the years, this is something that has come to bother me, although it doesn't bother me 
as much as it used to because I can talk about it. I used to not even be able to talk about it. Um, it, it really upset me that much. And I just always felt like I had rough skin. And I always felt like rough skin was a very masculine thing to have. And there is certainly nothing wrong with being masculine. It's just that I I am a woman. And I enjoy feeling like a woman. I enjoy feeling womanly, girly. I like girly stuff. Anyway, it, it, nothing nothing particularly girly about rough skin. Um, but it was, you know, something I learned to live with. And if, by the way, you're thinking, I've seen many pictures of you on the internet and you look completely normal and your skin looks fine, I can only say that in two dimensions, everything gets flattened out. That is, by the way, if you ever look at a picture of yourself and you think, oh my God, I... Do I look that heavy in real life? Do I really look like that? The answer is actually probably no. Uh, The camera really does add 10 pounds, and that is because it flattens three dimensions into two dimensions. So the the two dimensions that you do see look a little bit bigger than they would if you were seeing them in real life. And it it sort of, you know, flattens out your image and it flattens out, obviously, uneven skin texture will also flatten out if you're saying to yourself, okay, but I met you in person and your skin looked fine. Um, I can only say that in certain lights, in certain lighting, I look flawless. Um, and in other lights, I, I look like the picture of Dorian Gray, not Dorian Gray himself, who looks wonderful, but the picture of Dorian Gray that is slowly accumulating a horrible age and damage and, and looking more wizened as the years go by. That that would be me. In some lights, I I resemble the actual portrait of Dorian Gray. In others, I look like, you know, it's kind of if you think of Dorian Gray and his picture as the before and after, then in some lighting, I definitely look like a before, uh, an after, but in plenty of lighting, I look like a before. So it's something that's really bothered me. Anyway, I have begun a series of treatments to hopefully correct some of this, uh, one of which is called microneedling. Microneedling, if you are not familiar with it, it's actually a very popular anti-aging techniques more by this is Kate Beckinsale secret to youthful glowing skin as she pl- as my husband would put it plows ever further into her 50s um, he doesn't say that about Kate Beckinsale <laughs> he says that about me as i continue to plow deeper into my 50s as my husband so tactfully puts it anyway um so the microneedling machine the process uh, it, it's it's actually a very simple idea so it is a giant machine um, with a bunch of, of teeny tiny needles attached to a wand. And the idea is that the dermatologist uses this wand, put, you know, passes it all over your face, and the needles make a series of, of micro wounds, basically all over your face. And the idea is to get um, your skin to produce collagen to fill in those wounds. And in the process, it fills also fills in wrinkles and uneven texture and blah, blah, blah. This is the treatment. If you're saying, you know, gosh, Gwen, having youthful glowing skin certainly sounds wonderful, but isn't it awfully painful to have a bunch of tiny needles inserted repeatedly all over your face deep enough to cause little wounds that your body would then heal? The answer to your question is, oh my goodness, yes. Yes, it does. It is a rather painful procedure. They do put a numbing cream on your face. I would really hate to imagine what it would feel like without the numbing cream because my face was numb. It it was definitely numb when the procedure started and the numbness didn't wear off 
as such. Uh, but again, it is a, a bunch of needles being, you know, just like stuck repeatedly into your face, all over your face. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a an assistant helping my dermatologist and, and her job was to just keep running a clean cloth over my face, my face to absorb any blood that the little needles might have have brought out and uh the, the that little cloth was was rather bloody by the end of the procedure but anyway you do walk out of there by the way it, it just looks your face looks red it looks like you've been out in the sun for hours um and that redness persists for a few hours and then by the next day you look totally normal um you probably wouldn't want to put any makeup on over it i'm, I'm explaining this now i guess because you might be wondering is this treatment for me and so if you have wrinkles or other uneven texture on your skin that bother you and you have between $600 and $1,100 to spend on the treatment, knowing that you may require several treatments in order to see a full effect, then possibly it's for you. I will tell you, though, that this is not something I would do for aging. That's my own philosophy. And I, if you've listened to the show for a while, then whenever we talk about the subject of skin – I, I do say that the one skin problem I have never had is, is, is wrinkling, is aging. My, my skin is not really showing any age-related damage or, or issues right now. I, I suppose this is an example of something that we writers like to refer to as irony, uh, that, that the one quote-unquote problem for someone my age that would be totally normal is, is the one or, or concern or issue is, is the only one that I am not experiencing. Uh, my feeling has always been, though, that I, I would, in a heartbeat, trade every skin problem that I've ever had, the, the painful ones and the disfiguring ones, uh, to for just normal aging. I, I Sometimes I, I feel like, like this is maybe the universe's make good to me, that, okay, you know, I've had so many skin problems over the years and, and it has been, so, you know, such an unhappy experience on so many occasions. But this is, you know, I've waited so long. Now I'm in my 50s and, and this is my reward. Um, and maybe that is the case, but I, I really, this is not a humble brag. I am very sincere in saying I would just love to to just have skin that looked like everyone else's skin of everyone else my age. Some of my friends are are having tweakments and and other treatments. They're getting Botox and they are getting the procedures like the one that I just did for the sake of looking younger. And and I swear to God, I wish I were in their shoes and and I would probably just put on some moisturizer and go about my business. Although, of course, it is impossible to know a counterfactual. And maybe if I'd never had any other skin problems, I would take something as as wonderful as as just aging and looking your age and, and still being around. I have certainly known plenty of people who have not made it this far in the journey with me. And, and so I'd like to think that I would be grateful for those things. Maybe I wouldn't be. But if if I had never experienced any real skin problems, then I might you know feel that that something as normal as aging is a quote unquote problem. But from where I'm standing, if if you are listening to this podcast and you are dealing with uh, some lines or or bags or crow's feet of your own, you are insanely lucky, and I wish I was in your place uh, because there are far far worse 
skin problems, uh, both physically painful and just disfiguring and, and demoralizing to have to put up with. Uh, but anyway, we, we all, we all have our own crosses to bear. So the point of this whole long, side trip into the state of my skin, by the way, is that one of the the aftercare instructions that you are sent home with is obviously to be very careful about what touches your skin in the days following the treatment, not just because your skin is sensitive, but because the treatment has created a lot of little wounds in your face. And so you don't want to the greatest extent possible, what you don't want is is dirt or bacteria or or germs or anything that might create an infection or a problem in those little wounds to get into your face. So here's why that is. And and normally, you know, the the biggest constraint on that would be that you have to be for for the first 12 hours after the treatment, they don't want anything to touch your face at all, including your own hands. And that is a tough thing to remember, especially when you have like a little, you know, itch on your chin or the kind of thing that you normally wouldn't even think about. You would just give it a little scratch and move on. So that was something I had to be very aware of this past Wednesday when I had the treatment done. But the other problem, the reason why this is at all a relevant topic for this show, which I believe is about cats, is because in our house, uh, one daily ritual that Clayton and I have is that at some point after work is done for the day, whether it's right after we wrap up work or later in the evening, but Lawrence and I will sit on the couch, usually long enough to watch a movie or an episode of a TV show that we watch together, and Clayton gets into a pillow in my lap while we do this. And what Clayton likes to do is he, he so he likes to flip over onto his back while he's on this cushion and kind of nestle himself into the crook of my left arm. And so I'm kind of supporting it like a baby. Basically, I'm, I'm supporting his upper body with my left arm. The rest of him is just kind of sprawled out belly up on this, uh, giant, this, this gold silk cushion on our couch that he likes to lie on while he is tended to. And I rub his belly and he reaches up with his front paws and he likes to gently pat my face sometimes while I'm doing this, which is, unbelievably sweet and incredibly endearing. It really, really is. But of course, Clayton's paws, which he walks around in the in the litter box and in the floor of our house on, are the very last things that should be going directly, making any sort of direct contact with my face, certainly on the day of the treatment and probably for the several days afterwards. It is now Sunday. It is four days later and I, we still have not resumed standard um, Clayton belly rub procedure in this house. And I, I got to tell you, just the process of sitting down to watch a movie on the couch with my husband without Clayton in my lap, belly up, getting a tummy rub and stroking my face with his paws has has become a rather contentious issue. A Clayton is a cat and cats like their routines. And he cannot, for the life of him, understand why this routine has been so abruptly and brutally broken off. 
And this was especially bad on Wednesday because, as I'm sure you can imagine, when, it, when I got home from the procedure, they didn't give me, you know, they didn't put me under or anything close to it to perform it. But I was still, even though it was early in the day, I, I pretty much cashed in the chips for most work that day. Partly, actually, that was because I couldn't even put on my reading glasses for the rest of the day. My doctor didn't want me putting on sunglasses or reading glasses or really for anything even my own hair to touch my face for at least 12 hours following the procedure. So I really wasn't good for much other than sitting on the couch and watching TV or a movie or sitting upstairs in the bedroom um, watching TV or watching a movie. And again, these are all acti- <laughs> all activities. This is an activity that, that Clayton pretty consistently is a part of in the way I have already described. And so it was especially maddening for so for him, from his perspective, for so much more time on Wednesday to be devoted to my sitting around and watching TV, and yet so much less time for him on my lap. It was actually no time at all. So that's what's been happening, and it has made... Um, hang out time in our house, a, a little bit dicey, a little bit uncomfortable. Clayton, now just while we're watching TV or movie, he, he sits on the floor in, pr- in front of me and cries and cries. And, and I try to bend down and pat him and reassure him, but he is not having it. So it is only a few more days of this, and then it should be okay for us to resume our normal activities. Um, and if you're thinking to yourself, you know, is it really a good idea for you to be doing this even normally if there is so much stuff on Clayton's paws? Should it should they ever be touching your face? And that is also a fair question and something I certainly stop to consider during this week when I'm taking such ex- you know so much more extreme precautions than I usually do. But I feel like the answer to that question um and and I really and I realize I don't have to give it to to a cat-loving audience is that at a certain point, we just interact with our cats and and the, let the chips fall where they may. And it probably doesn't pay to be too fussy because, to my knowledge, I have never experienced any sort of a health problem related to contact with my cat's paws. And honestly, the engagement, the physical engagement with my cats is one of the primary reasons why they are here in this house in the first place. So that would be my answer to your question is you may be right, but... It's not really something I'm looking to put a stop to long term. Just during this healing period from the pain and damage that I inflicted on myself earlier this week in the ongoing process of making myself more beautiful. And in yet another example of what we writers refer to as irony, because truly, had you seen me earlier this week, immediately following the procedure, it would not have occurred to you that what I had done was an attempt to make myself look better because I most certainly did not look better at the time. Although once again, now I look pretty much normal, which is good news because this coming up Saturday, um, October 14th, I'm going to be giving the keynote address at this year's Cat Writers uh, Association Conference. I almost said Cat Writers of America. It is, in fact, the CWA, the Cat Writers Association, of which I'm a proud member and have been for a number of years. And this year, I have been invited to give the keynote speech, although it's a virtual conference this year. Uh, The CWA conferences used to be held in person. Starting in 2020 with quarantine, we went to the – or 
the, the conference organizers went to a virtual format, uh, which is persisting into this year. You know, I don't know if I have any CWA officers or members who listen to this podcast. Probably there are a couple. And and I'm just going to give my opinion, and I understand that the CWA is not a wealthy organization, and I can only imagine, you know, again, I worked in nonprofit for a long time, so I have no doubt that if you were on the board or if, or if you were one of the people who organizes all of the many wonderful conferences, activities, and events that the CWA puts together, that you are routinely making miracles with the very small budget and resources that you have to work with. And and I do understand all of that. But I would also suggest that the conference meeting in person is probably one of the the great benefits that membership in the CWA offers. You know, at a certain point, you do actually want to meet the other members of the association. I, I feel like that camaraderie and the ability to help each other out, to have a casual conversation with someone and, and discover that they have a project that could use a little bit of support and that you, as it turns out, are in a position to to you know, un- be uniquely able to assist them. Or not even uniquely, but you can write something about it uh, in a publication that you write for or post something on your social media accounts where you're popular I really, at this point, obviously, I'm describing very garden variety networking, and and certainly anybody listening knows what I'm talking about. So I will not belabor the point, but the idea being that I I really think that that the CWA's chief strength, what it really has to offer, is not you know the the seminars, the the how tos, the the learning new skills, or or finding the courage to try new things. There's so many free resources online these days to teach you how to do just about anything you might want to do. I, I really think where the benefit accrues is is from getting to meet and interact with your fellow CWA members who do different kinds of writing and work in different sectors of the writing community than you do. Again, the idea being that that ultimately you have the opportunity to form personal relationships with people who you might not otherwise meet who are in a position to understand what it, what it is that you're trying to do and to maybe help you further your goals or if nothing else to provide that that encouragement and support that all of us need. Um, it also feels a little weird. I can't lie. So I'm going to be giving the keynote address basically from my living room uh, into my phone. And that feels <laughs> a little a little odd, too. But nevertheless, I, I am truly honored to have been asked, and I'm looking forward to giving the address. And of course, one of the hot topics this year is AI. And AI is breathing down the neck of uh, necks of a lot of writers. Certainly, if you are somebody who works in copywriting, uh, marketing and advertising copywriting, I, I think you should have some concerns at this point about the direction that AI might be going in or how quickly it might replace you. I, I think for maybe for some genres of writing, there could be some concerns down the road if if you write romances or spy th- thrillers or or the kinds of books that tend to be very formulaic. It does not seem beyond the realm of possibility that within five years' time, if not sooner, there could be sophisticated enough AI to to write a very credible seeming uh, spy thriller or murder mystery. I mean, the truth, of course, is that we don't really know where the technology is going to go or what it's going to be able to do. 
But it does seem that that certain types of writing will be that AI will be able to take on certain types of writing, certainly better than others, um, and possibly within a shorter period of time. And so, of course, I, you know, and in looking over the conference topics, it looks like there are a few topics dedicated, a few of the breakout sessions dedicated to AI, the, the, the creep of AI, and, and the effect that it may have on writers and what we do long term. But I got to say, and, and this you, here, you can hear the substance of my speech for free. You can get a little preview right now. I, I will obviously talk about this more in depth, but my feeling is really that when it comes specifically to people who do the kind of writing that we do in the Cat Writers Association, that we, I think, have less to fear from AI than others. And I would never want to be arrogant enough to say that that no computer could ever write as well as I do. Uh, because presumably at some point there will be a computer who can write as well as I do, who might be able to do such a flawless impression of my writing style that I wouldn't even be able to recognize the difference, that I might read something and I might be unsure if it's something that I wrote at one point. I don't really think that would happen because I have a really good memory for stuff that I write, but you understand the point that I'm making, that that AI might imitate me to to such an extent that it would be or, or not just me, but any writer, that we would find it difficult ourselves to distinguish between an imitative AI and something that we had written. But the one benefit, I think, for – or the one advantage, I guess, in a landscape like that, that those of us who write about animals, not only those of us who write about animals, by the way, but certainly those of us who do, is that I really think, and I've always felt this, that for my books – the reason why readers like my books and the reason why they do well, it's not because I'm such an amazing writer or because my stories are inherently so much better than anybody else's stories. Definitely that last part I I know to a certainty is not true. I, I think that people are not coming for the exotic escapism. I, I think it is actually the reverse of that. I, I think it's the knowledge that that somebody else feels the way you do. I, I feel like the most frequent comment, if, if you were to take all of the, the reader emails that I have received since Homer's Odyssey was first started, and if you were to feed them all to an, an AI algorithm who was to then try to identify certain commonalities or, or themes that keep reappearing, the one that would reappear most frequently in all the letters I've received is is some version of... I could tell in reading this book that you understand how I feel about my cats. And I, I think for certain kinds of writing, and it's not just animal writing, you can, all of us could probably sit and, and think of a couple of genres or, or types of books that we read, even if they're how-to books, even if they're self-help, even if it's not a story per se, even if it's something that's meant to instruct, um, you still like knowing that the person who's written it is a person who feels the way you feel, who has been through some of the things that you have been through, who's experienced some of the things that you've experienced, and who is speaking to you that, you know, that that's what forges an emotional connection between you and, and a person you have never met and probably will never meet. And I always say that that every art form, it, it has its advantages and its disadvantages. Film gets to be visual and immediate in a way that reading a book is never going to be. 
but nothing is ever going to be as intimate as reading a book because when you read a book it really it's 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 the author talking directly into your head it really is a very direct form of communication or at least it it feels that way and so i think for writing even more than other types of creative endeavors people are more inclined to like the idea that there is actually a person on the other side of that writing. I think certainly on a topic as emotional as our companion animals and and our cats and how we feel about our cats and and the time we spend with them. I, I think, you know, I, I try to imagine some of my favorite animal stories, even the ones that, that are fictional that I know didn't really happen to any, certainly Charlotte's Web. And I actually think Charlotte's Web is a great example because so here's a story that maybe hypothetically an advanced AI could write something like this. It, it is a fantastical story, essentially all made up. I, I have to assume that E.B. White did not actually know any talking pigs or or spiders who could write, who could weave English language words into their webs. But of course you like knowing, and, and I actually know very, very little about E.B. White, but I have always, even as a child, gone on the assumption, the underlying assumption that E.B. White was a real person who loved animals as much as I did, who must love animals as much as I did to have written such a great animal story. And I think even as a child, as, as a six or seven year old, if somebody had said to me that there was no E.B. White, that E.B. White was a computer who just whose whose goal was to make up stories to entertain children who like animals, I think I would have found that to be very disappointing. Now we might get to, we might eventually arrive at a point as a culture where children are so used to AI creating entertainment for them that it doesn't even register. But I, I do genuinely feel that, that that is something that will happen more slowly, if it even happens at all, um, not just within writing, but again, within certain types of writing or certain subjects. And I, I speak not only as a reader, uh, but also as a writer, when I say that that, that feeling of of community and connection, I, I think is one of the the great things that we get from animal writing that we love. We love knowing as readers that there is somebody else who feels about animals the way that we do. It it does, I, I think, feel incredibly. I was going to say validating, but it makes you feel very seen, you know, because I think we all have the experience of being that person who likes animals a little bit more than most of the people we know. And so a lot of times people find can find that to be strange about us. So it, it feels very validating and I think very seen when you find an author who feels just the way you do. But I can also, as an author, I can also say that for me, one of the greatest aspects of writing Homer's Honesty has been finding this community of other cat lovers and cat enthusiasts that I've been engaging with really every day for the last 15 years. And of course, just because I feel a certain way as a writer does not mean I shouldn't, that I'm on solid ground in assuming that readers feel the same way. But I, I am again going to go out on a limb and say, that we all love being a part of a community. And it's why we spend so much time engaging with writers who write about cats and people who talk about cats on social media or on podcasts, etc. And, you know, I, I was getting ready to to kind of begin easing into the wrap up for the podcast right now. And, and Fanny just 
walked in as I'm recording. And I re- I realize that I talk about Fanny so much less than I talk about Clayton. And I, I do want to dispel any idea that I am so much closer to Clayton than I am with Fanny, because I swear it is not true. And actually, Fanny has been kind of the big winner this week, because Fanny also loves to, to lie in my lap. Fanny is very much a lap cat, but Fanny likes to curl up in your lap. You know, Clayton does this thing where he flips onto his back and then touches my face with his paws. But Fanny just curls up in my lap very sweetly in a very normal cat sort of way. And so because Clayton could not be in my lap this week, it was that much more available to Little Miss Fanny Pants. I will tell you, though, honestly, the reason I I don't talk more about Fanny and and this really goes back to a writing 101 thing where teachers really the, the first thing when you're a kid in elementary school and, and your teacher has you write a story as an assignment for a class, right? That one of the first things that anybody who teaches you anything about writing is going to ingrain in your head is that there has to be a conflict. There has to be something that goes wrong that is always the launching point for a story. And the thing about Fanny is that Fanny is possibly the most perfectly, beautifully behaved creature I have ever lived with. Uh, Fanny really causes no problem. She doesn't knock things off the mantelpiece. She doesn't shred the furniture with her claws. She doesn't start fights with Clayton or push Clayton away from his food. Um, she she does nothing that is destructive. She does some things that are, that are funny to see, but they are very much within the purview of, of things that cats do normally. I, I will say, though, for the most part, even just kind of walking around and living her life, Fanny is very rarely, she, she's very graceful and very lithe and... She always, for the most part, executes her leaps and and other movements with, with this very beautiful precision. And she is an absolute and utter joy to live with. The only problem, of course, is that for somebody like me, who writes about her cats and is always looking for fodder, basically, she provides very little fodder because she causes very few problems. She she has really no bad habits. Um, she essentially does nothing wrong. And so, yeah, she is delightful to live with, but but she's she does not give me a lot of great stories to tell. But I'm going to start trying, I'm going to start working a little bit harder to find them because it really does always, every so often, I'll see a comment on social media or get an email from somebody wondering if Fanny passed away, if she crossed the Rainbow Bridge and the person writing to me never heard about it because it's been so long since I've mentioned Fanny. And so no, Fanny is still here. Fanny has not crossed the Rainbow Bridge uh, Fanny is, you know, Fanny's not the walrus. The walrus is not dead. If you play the podcast backwards, you're not going to hear any hints that indicate that Fanny is not around anymore. Uh, Fanny is just a, she's a good girl who, who does a lot to make my life better, but very, very little to give me stories to tell. So that is the answer to that question. I will do my best to include Fanny, more of Fanny in upcoming episodes. I do realize that I have quite a few more listeners in the UK right now than I used to as Homer's Odyssey um, begins its very auspicious rollout in the United Kingdom, the new edition of Homer's Odyssey. 
and continues to find new readers and those readers are starting to reach out to me. So thank you so much if you are listening. I am aware of the fact that Fanny has a different meaning in the UK than it does here in the United States. Um, for those wondering why I named Fanny Fanny, it was a family name uh, that Lawrence and I both had great Aunt Fannies. We both had grandparents who had, we each had a grandfather who had a sister named Fanny who were our great Aunt Fannies. Uh, it's a, a very common name in Jewish families. I think it actually at one point was not an uncommon name in the UK either, at least it seems to me that off the top of my head, I can recall at least a couple of 19th century novels with heroines named Fanny. Anyway, here in the United States, uh, Fanny's name is not considered to be problematic. And uh, yeah, at the time that I named her, it really did not occur to me that <laughs> that I should be considering how a name that I gave my cat here in the U.S. might strike people on the other side of the pond. So if you are listening in the U.K. and your sensibilities are offended in any way by the fact that my cat's name is Fanny, I suppose I apologize, uh, but please do not hold it against my little Miss Fanny Pants, who is an innocent in all of this and is also utterly and insanely adorable. And on that note, I'm going to get back to cuddling with my adorable cats and allow you to do the same with yours. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to join me again next week. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today. <laughs>